as Tyson even started to mention, and as my 11-year-old asked on the way home from Sunday school last week, what is good about Good Friday? And uh, I think we'll be honest and, 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 and realize that it is a bit awkward that we are gathering to rejoice at someone dying. And not just someone dying, but, but Jesus, the, the Son of God, the, the second member of the Trinity. And not just dying, but being crucified on a cross. So while tonight we come not only somber to remember the worst day in all of history, we also still rejoice that this is simultaneously the greatest day in all of history. When, when the work that the death of Jesus accomplished was finished for us. So if you will, take your copies of God's Word and turn to Romans chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 6 to 11 tonight. Romans chapter 5, 6 to 11. While you're turning there, I want to ask, what do you think of when you think of the cross? What we just sang about. When you survey that wonderful cross, what, what do you think of? I believe it is, it is wise and it is, it is good for Christians to In my own life, it's, it's easy to see what happens if I don't have the cross on my mind every day. I personally fall into to one of two traps. If I don't think of the cross every day, I either A, get puffed up in pride and think that I'm doing just fine on my own and I don't need a savior. Or B, I, I fall into despair and I think that there is no one who could possibly save me after all the wrong that I've done. Now, these, these may not be thoughts, as a good Christian, of course, that, that I would recognize, but, but with introspection, they are the thoughts that I'm practically living out of. So think for yourself tonight. What do you think of when you think of the cross? And hopefully that's happening more often than just this Good Friday evening or, or even the week of Easter when you're getting emails every day reminding you of what we're celebrating. But, but do you think of the injustice that occurred through the mock trial, the conviction of Jesus in a Roman court? Do you think of the disappointment, the confusion, and, and likely the fear that the followers of Jesus must have felt when they saw him hanging there? Maybe think of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the pain and the heartache she experienced of watching her son suffer and die. Now maybe Hollywood has given you images of what a beaten and broken body must have looked like as Jesus breathed his last few breaths. Maybe you're not even able to, to stomach that level of torture and that level of gore. So when you think of the cross, you immediately think of the resurrection and an empty tomb. Rightly so. But for most and, and many of us, I think the thoughts of the cross bring thoughts of God's amazing love for us. A love so great that, that he would send his son. Now John 3.16 is probably the most popular and well-known verse for Christians and non-Christians alike. Indeed, all about God's love for us. Now, there's an account of, of Henry Morehouse. He was a 19th century British evangelist. Uh, he, he preached at Dwight Moody's church for seven straight nights on John 3.16. Seven nights on, on this one verse. I have six verses I'm working with tonight alone, but I'm not going to keep you here uh, too long. But at the end of the seventh night, just this, Morehouse said, if I could borrow Jacob's ladder 
and climb into heaven and ask Gabriel, who stands in the presence of the Almighty, to tell me how much love the Father has for the world, all he could say is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's beautiful. That's what seven days of preaching on John 3.16 brings. John 3.16 answers the question, how much does God love me? God loves me so much that he sent his only son to die for me. Now, dozens of things could captivate our minds, but tonight I want us to think through another question that John 3.16 answers that we may not be as quick to ask when we think of the cross. The question is, how great is my sin? John 3.16 tells me the answer to that as well. My sin is so great that God had to send his only son to die for me. So when we think of the cross tonight, for which Jesus had to die, I want us to look at the greatness of sin, not to cause us to leave here feeling burdened or with guilt and shame, because I'm convinced, though, that, that we will not fully understand this love that God demonstrated on the cross until we understand the amazing love and mercy and grace of God that was demonstrated richly and fully on the cross. And as we confess the greatness of our sin, God can do an amazing work in our hearts. The more we understand the magnitude of our sin and, and the helplessness of our state apart from God and who we were before God, the more we will be in overwhelming awe of the brilliant demonstration of God's love for us. And I really believe that the part of our Christian growth is fueled by greater recognition of our sin that leads us to a greater appreciation of God's abundant love. And as we come to see that abundant love more and more, we will have greater certainty that that love of God is in us and, and that that love of God will lead us to a greater response. So let's turn in our text and see the abundant and certain love of God. So if you're able, uh, please stand for the public reading of God's word from Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 11. From the English Standard Version, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Please be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit that helps us understand the things that you freely give us. Open the eyes of our hearts as we meditate on your abundant love tonight. Amen. 
Now, I do apologize. I did not get my sermon notes in time before publishing uh, to the team. So uh, if you are one that keeps notes, you have a blank spot on the back of your handout there. I'm going to break it down in three kind of separate sections. So I think you'll gather it as we go. But those three sections we'll go through tonight are the abundance of God's love in verses six to eight, the abundance of God's love, the certainty of God's love, verses nine and ten, the certainty of God's love, and finally, the response to God's love, verse 11. Now, we've often been told, and I'm sure you've told others at times, it is not nice to call people names. And while I agree with that sentiment, I can't read the text here and not feel like Paul is calling people names, bad names, not not names that, that I would certainly enjoy being called. I count four different names that Paul uses in our text. In verse six, he calls us weak, and ungodly. In verse 8, he calls us sinners. And in verse 10, we are called enemies of God. Now, this is not very flattering language, to say the least. Paul is known to give descriptive lists to drive his point home. He's painting a picture of who we were, and he does it very well. And I believe he does it so that we may know this absolute and this abundant love of God. So let's look at these three words quickly. First, he calls us weak. Some translations say helpless. In other words, Paul is saying we were too weak, too helpless, unable to save ourselves. Now he captures this more fully uh, in Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 3, and you don't need to turn there, but, but Paul reminds us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were followers of Satan. We were living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. We had no strength in ourselves there. As if calling us weak uh, weak isn't enough, Paul calls us ungodly. So what does it mean to be ungodly? Well, think of any characteristic of God that you may desire to attain. Justice, his mercy, his grace, his love, his goodness. To be ungodly means you are unlike any of those things. You are unjust. You are unmerciful, you are ungraceful, you are unloving, you are ungood, you're not good, all right? You are not like God at all. Paul goes on, he calls us weak, calls us ungodly, goes on to call us sinners. To sin is to miss the mark or to fall short of the standard, the standard being God's law. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I've found when talking to and counseling people, most Christians have very little problem admitting that they are sinners, at least generically. But it's when you start to name the sin that the defenses start to go up. When you start to actually label the sin the way the Bible labels the sin, that's when you see what people really think about their sin, whether they're trying to downplay it or whether they are taking responsibility for their sin. They may say, well, I don't always tell the truth. No, the Bible says you're a liar. I don't always deal honestly in my business. The Bible says you're a thief. Sometimes I have lustful thoughts about the opposite sex. No, the Bible says you're sexually immoral. You're an idolater, you're a fornicator. We need to come to grips with the fact that we were sinners of the worst kind. Finally here, the fourth word, Paul's calls us enemies of God. Now, even to the most callous person, if you believe in God, 
the thought of being God's enemy has to be terrifying. Paul is not just referring to your posture towards God. Paul is not just saying that you view God as your enemy. Paul's also reminding us that God viewed us as his enemy. Nahum 1-2 tells us, The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. There is no self-esteem message from Paul here. And I don't think we need to shy away from being honest about who we were. Why are we afraid to admit what is already so painfully obvious in our lives? And, And realistically, it's often not because we think God won't accept us. It's because we think others won't accept us. But if we're honest, if if God accepts us, nothing else that anyone says or does should really matter. Many of you know Cameron Dobbins, and before he was one of our global outreach partners, he was a pastoral intern here. When I would counsel with him and we started meeting with someone new and getting to know them and and getting getting them to open up, he would often say, I already know the worst thing about you. You murdered Jesus. And he would follow it up with, and so did I. But this abundant love of God loved us even when we were weak, when we were ungodly, when we were a sinner, when we were his enemy. That is abundant love. And as Paul often does, he he gives us a human example to try to help us make this point clear. He does this in verse 7 and 8. Verse 7, if you look again, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Now, there are stories of those who have sacrificially laid down their lives for another. And I'm sure if I asked you to come up with a list of those you'd be willing to take a bullet for, I'm sure you'd have family and friends of those you'd be be willing to die for. But Paul almost seems to anticipate someone saying this, someone saying, I'm willing to die for my family, so what's the big deal? Jesus didn't die for his family. Jesus died for his enemies. Jesus died so that you could become children of God, so that you could become family, but he did not die for you as a children of God. You were not God's child. You were the enemy. Some may be willing to die for a righteous or good person, but would you die for a weak, ungodly sinner? Would you die for the person who just murdered your family? Would you die for the drug dealer who just sold your child drugs and they overdosed? Would you go to death row right before they administer a lethal injection and say, give it to me instead? This is the abundant love of God in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's abundant love for his enemies should motivate us to confess our sins openly and honestly. Confess your sins to God, to others. 1 John 1.9 promises us if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no sin, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation that will separate you from this abundant love of God. Next, God's love is certain. It is abundant and God's love is certainly certain. It was certain 2,000 years ago. It's certain today, it's certain for the day of judgment, and it will be certain for all eternity. Let's look again at verses 9 and 10. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. A couple words we need to look at here. Uh, justified in verse 9 and reconciled 
in verse 10. Justified or justification is a legal term with two main components. The first is that we have been declared not guilty. So I want you to do a thought exercise with me here. I want you to imagine being the defendant in a courtroom with boxes of evidence against you. Every law that you have ever broken is recorded and cataloged. The room is filled with with witnesses that the prosecution is going to call that can confirm every one of the allegations against you. There is no defense you can make. There is no, there's no plea deal. Right before the judge is about to announce the verdict and the sentence, someone stands up and says, I'll take the penalty. The judge looks at you, slams the gavel and says, not guilty. You're free to go as the bailiff hauls away the person who stood in your place. That substitute was Jesus. Jesus took your place and now you have been declared not guilty. That's part one of justification. If you think it couldn't get any better, we go to part two. It's equally miraculous. Not only are you not guilty, but you have been given or imputed Christ's righteousness. So the perfect life that Jesus lived is now credited to your account. A way to remember the the two parts of justification is justification is just as if I've never sinned, not guilty, and just as if I've always done everything perfectly. That's justification. The second is reconciliation. To reconcile means to bring together or make peace between two estranged or hostile parties. Justification and reconciliation are not the same thing, and neither is one greater than the other. Both are amazing and both are miraculous. When we think of being reconciled to God, though, who are we that we should be reconciled to the creator of the universe? Now, one of the great things of studying scripture is is you pick up something new every time you dive into a text. And as I was studying uh, one of the commentaries on this passage, I learned that reconciliation language is not used in many religions. This is because most religions cannot even fathom or conceive of the idea of a personal relationship with a deity, let alone that relationship being reconciled, being made right. But this is the amazing personal God that reconciled us to himself so that we could be called his children. Now this justification reconciliation should give us an unwavering confidence in our salvation now and forever. Paul is making it clear here by repeating things. His argument is from greater to lesser. In other words, if God has already justified you by the blood of Jesus, the greatest thing, then you should have no worries about the day of judgment, the lesser thing. If grace covers the sin of his enemies, how much more does it cover the sins of his children? And if God has already reconciled you by the death of Jesus, the greatest thing, then you should have no worries about your life. If the dying Savior reconciled us to God, how much more will the living Savior keep and hold your life? If God loved you so much that he sent his only son, how much more do you think he loves you now as his child? We can be certain in God's love. And in that certainty, you can trust that God will hold your life now and forever. There is no need to try to earn God's love. You can't. There's no need to rely on your own effort to improve your standing with God. Your standing with God was finalized on the cross, and you can be certain that in Christ, it will never change. One final point I want us to see from our text tonight, and this is the response to God's love in verse 11. 
More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. When we study God's word, there's often a tendency within us to ask, what do I need to do with what I just read or or what I just heard? And we can almost feel uncomfortable if we don't have a three to five step plan to apply the lesson. And don't get me wrong, application is good and right and needed. Both James and Jesus told us not to just be hearers of the word, but doers also. But when we are studying and thinking of the cross, we need to be careful. The cross is the ultimate symbol that it is already done. It has already been accomplished. It is finished. We have been justified and reconciled, not because of what we have done, but because of what God has done through Jesus. We have been justified and reconciled in spite of ourselves. Christianity is the only religion in the world, the only religion where your standing before God is not based on your achievements, but is based wholly on what Jesus accomplished for you on the cross. So God's abundant love should lead us to confess our sin, and and God's certain love should lead us to trust him to save us. But, But after exploring the unfathomable work of Christ for his enemies, Paul calls us to do just one thing. Paul has a single response for the believer, and and he keeps it short and sweet. The believer that has been justified and reconciled is to do what? Rejoice in God. Rejoice. Rejoice in who God is. Don't rejoice in the justification and the reconciliation. Those are the gifts. Those are great things, but those are the gifts. Rejoice in the giver. Rejoice in the God who loves, in the God who justifies, in in the God who reconciles. The greatest thing God ever gave us was himself. The cross demonstrated his love and accomplished what nothing else could. He gave us strength for the weak, godliness for the ungodly, righteousness for the sinner, and reconciliation for the enemy. Now, there have been times in my life when I have been confronted by the weightiness of my sin, and I wish I could say it was always in the moments immediately after my sin, and I instantaneously repent and uh, confess to God and confess to those I have sinned against. But unfortunately, that is sadly not often the case. But God has used times of meditation on his word and many times music to bring greater understanding of the depth of my weakness and ungodliness and my sin. There are occasionally new songs, but uh, most of the time it's the classic hymns that, that bring these things to my heart. One of my favorite is There's a Fountain Filled with Blood. This is an 18th century hymn, and we're actually going to sing it together in a few minutes. And as you're singing, I want you to pay attention to the words you sing. The opening verse is good. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. A beautiful truth, a a needed reminder for us often. But verse 2 is what hits me hard every time. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Vile as he. Vile is not a word we use often. I think of mass murderers, pedophiles, the like. I'm not like those people, am I? If you asked 100 people who knew me, would they describe me as vile? Am I as vile as that thief on the cross next to Jesus? So let's think about that for a moment. Let's think of that thief on the cross. 
The Bible tells us very little about him, but given his current condition being executed on a cross, it doesn't take much effort to imagine what his life has been like up to this point. I don't anticipate he was the valedictorian of his high school and went to, on to graduate law school, school magna cum laude and was now a, a prestigious member of Roman society. Now, while the Romans were not gentle people, with the exception of Jesus, they did not crucify random people. Crucifixion was saved for some of the worst of the worst. The thief had likely lived a life of lawlessness since childhood. Yet in the very last minutes of this thief's life, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. So think of that, but let's take that a step further. This thief dies moments later. He instantaneously finds himself in heaven. Imagine if you had known this thief while he was alive and you were the first one to see him in heaven. What would your reaction be? Would you do a double take and be like, what are you doing here? Would you ask him how long ago he turned his life around? Would you ask him what church he'd been going to or, or what life group he was in or, or how much money he, he donated to the poor and needy? I mean, I could see us all standing around him in heaven expecting to hear some marvelous testimony of the changes that happened in this thief's life and, and maybe how he was a close personal follower of Jesus for these past three years. The thief would look at you with a puzzled expression He'd explain that he never really did turn his life around. In fact, he was just tried in a court of law, convicted, and moments ago was just hanging on a cross. When you ask again, so then why are you here? His response can only be because the man on the cross next to me said I could be here. On that day, we die and go to heaven. If the answer to the question, why are you here, is anything other than because the man on the cross next to me, or man on the cross said that I could be here, you don't fully understand the weight of your sin. You don't understand who you were before Jesus. You don't understand how weak you were, how ungodly you were. If you think there is something you have done or will do that justifies and reconciles you to God, you're gravely mistaken. God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This love of God shown through the sacrifice of the sin for those still in sin should lead us to rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. How much does God love you? He loves you so much that he sent his only son to die for you. And how great is your sin? Your sin is so great that he had to send his only son to die for you. And he did. So if you're here tonight and you're feeling the burden of your sin, uh, perhaps for the first time or, or perhaps you have not confessed sin and, and brought it into the light, then I want you to urge you to deal with it. Sin is a burden that given all of eternity, you will not be able to remove without the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus bore your burden of your sin and, and my sin on the cross. And in doing so, he fully satisfied the wrath of God that we deserved. In Christ, your sins have been forgiven. In Christ, your slate has been wiped clean. In Christ, the righteousness of the life of Jesus has been credited to your account. You have been reconciled. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, tonight we bow our knees before you, whom every family in heaven and on earth is named,
that according to the riches of your glory, you strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we may be rooted and grounded in love and have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And as we do, may we be filled with all the fullness of you. Amen.